0: Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. As you are doing that, I wanted to tell you, I spent a couple of days this week at a conference where tens of thousands of people, no, one ten of thousands of people, uh, were really excited to hear from pastors and leaders and preachers that they didn't know, you know. So my hope for you this morning is that you would be encouraged and excited to hear from a pastor who knows you very well and who loves you very much. Yeah. Speaking of conferences, from 2006 to 2022, there existed a ministry known as Together for the Gospel. Over the course of this ministry, this conference, uh, tens of thousands of people would gather from all around the world to hear from pastors and teachers Shai Lin, David Platt, Mark Dever, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Matt Chandler, Ligon Duncan. I mean, it's, it's everyone. The Presbyterians and the Baptists, the Cessationists and the Continuationists, the big churches and the small churches. They were all working together for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. And it was, a, I think, a, a beautiful, powerful movement for the kingdom. I don't think I'm aware of any ministry that has had the impact of Together for the Gospel, at least in my lifetime. But then, after 16 years of what I think is abundant gospel fruit, there arose among American evangelicals a sharp disagreement. We might say a series of sharp disagreements, what I call the triumvirate of hell. Trump, COVID, race. And the disagreements were such that, American evangelicals just couldn't really be in the same room together, it seemed like, without breaking out into quarrels. It got so bad that finally, in 2022, the Together for the Gospel movement came to an end. Now let's rewind about 2,000 years to the Apostle Paul. We know a lot about the Apostle Paul's life. He was a Pharisee. Prior to his conversion, he was a persecutor of the church. He had a radical conversion experience wherein he received a direct ministry commission from the Lord Jesus himself. After that, he was a pastor, a church planter, a missionary to the Gentiles, often through the fiercest persecution and most significant forms of suffering. He was a doer of good works, a lover of the church, a champion of the poor, a fearless preacher of the gospel quite a resume one of Paul's main ministry partners at least in the early days of his ministry was a man named Barnabas here's what we know about Barnabas Barnabas was a Jew he was a Levite his nickname was the son of encouragement and he was referred to in this way because of his inclination to serve and exhort the church His first encounter with the apostles was an act of service. Listen, this is from Acts chapter 4. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So right away you see that this is the kind of guy who is all in for Jesus, right? We need more Barnabas types in the church. Soon after Paul's conversion, he ended up linking up with Barnabas, where, from what we can tell, Barnabas had a significant hand in discipling the newly converted apostle. Barnabas was commissioned as a missionary by the church in Antioch to go on missionary journeys with the apostle Paul. Barnabas was the one who brought Paul before the apostles in Jerusalem when they were trying to figure out, you know, are we preaching the same gospel? Are we on the same team? Yeah, that never would have happened if Barnabas wouldn't have been able to bring Paul before the apostles. In the book of Acts, Luke describes Barnabas using these words. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So this good, faithful effective spirit-filled man accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey and from what we read in Acts chapter 11 the Lord used him and I quote to lead a great many people to the Lord. So add effective evangelist to the list of uh, yeah attributes on his resume. So all this taken together, we see that Paul and Barnabas were something of like a dynamic duo, a dynamic missionary duo that the Lord was using really powerfully. That is, until a sharp disagreement arose between them. In Acts chapter 15, Luke tells us what I think is one of the saddest stories of a a ministry breakup in church history. Listen. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, this is Barnabas' cousin. You always got to stick up for your cousin, right? Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose amongst them a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas And departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. The dynamic duo, torn asunder, split apart, divided. Over what? They probably thought it was pretty significant. Looking back, maybe they would have said it wasn't as significant as they first thought. Now let's hit the fast forward button, but just a little bit, to the church at Philippi. We don't know a ton about the two sisters that we're going to be reading about in this morning's text, Euodia and Syntyche. All we know is that we really don't know how to pronounce their names. I mean, I said it like I knew, but I don't know, right? We know that they are two sisters in the church there. We also know that they, at some point with Paul and his ministry, they were co-laborers with him and very faithful, useful co-laborers. And yet it seems like by the time Paul is imprisoned and he's writing to the Philippian church, Sometime between his missionary journeys and his imprisonment, there arose a sharp disagreement between these two sisters, these beloved co-laborers in the gospel. And Paul is concerned. If I had to bet, I would say that Paul's painful split with Barnabas, that wound was still fresh as he was thinking about, no, 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 don't let this happen in your church. And so Paul puts pen to paper at the very end of his letter and he gets very specific and says... You Audia you cannot let disunity reign in the church. We have to fight for unity. So let's read about it together. Philippians chapter four, verses two through three. I entreat you, Audia, and I entreat Syntyche. and I, I like the way that's not an over translation. I think he says it to each of them so that they both know that they bear equal responsibility for this. I entreat you, Audia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and there is no kind of challenge to unity in the church that we can face that God's word is not sufficient to address. Amen? So... In order to understand what's happening in this week's text, you actually have to go back to last week's text. You have to go back to verse 1. Last week in verse 1, Paul had an exhortation to the Philippians, and his exhortation was, stand firm. You see that. He, 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 Therefore, my brothers, the ones that I love, you're my joy, you're my crown, I love you, miss you, X's, O's, hugs and kisses, right? But then he says, stand firm, thus in the Lord. Now, in my sermon last week, uh, I, I, I applied that exhortation in a very individualistic way. It was like, you know, Dom, you know, stand firm. Courtney, aunt, you know, stand firm. And that's true. At some level, all scripture should be applied to us as individuals. But what I want you to see this morning is that Paul's exhortation to the Philippians was actually more corporate than individual in nature. He's, when he says stand firm, stand firm, he's actually talking to the whole church, right? And in order to really understand that, you have to see that the only other time Paul uses the phrase stand firm in Philippians, he's, he also uses it corporately. Turn back, flip with me to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. I, I love the sound of the pages of our Bibles turning in the morning as we flip back to Philippians chapter one. You see right there in Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. And that you is plural, it's the church, that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's how you know it's corporate, right? Because right, it's a bunch of different spirits, but they need to stand together in one spirit with one mind. A bunch of different minds, but they need to have one mind. Striving side by side for the faith." of the gospel. Okay? So so in the same way that he was using stand firm corporately in chapter 1, he's using stand firm corporately here in chapter 2. He's exhorting the whole church that they that the only way that they can actually stand is if they stand unified. And so what Paul does is is he he moves from this sort of general exhortation to very specific He's been sort of laying the foundation for this throughout the whole letter. He's been talking about unity, unity, unity in general, in principle. He's been laying the theological foundation foundation. We do this oftentimes as pastors in the church. If you hear us teaching on a theme pretty consistently in applications, or in pastoral prayers, or in Sunday schools, and it always seems to be like, man, they're, they're hitting on that theme again, you better believe there's probably some specific application that's going to come up in the life of our church at Sixth Avenue that we've sort of been paving the way for. So in the same way, Paul has been paving the way, and now he gets to the main issue. I've heard that Uadi and Syntyche, are not agreeing in the Lord and that is going to affect your ability as a church to persevere right it just makes sense right if two faithful like Titus two women like faithful gospel warriors Proverbs 31 women in the church begin to have real problems we're gonna feel it right Miss Susan and Miss Janice they're beefing on Facebook we're gonna feel it right <laughs> You know, Amber DeMars versus Allison Miller. There's no way that we're not going to feel the reverberations of that throughout our congregation, right? If, if two sisters in the church and two men uh, in the church are, are quarreling with one another and there's no attempt to bring reconciliation to that, it can tear the whole church apart. And so what does Paul do? Well, he writes to this true companion. Do you see that there? Go back to chapter 4. Flip back over there. In verse 3, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. So this this true companion is a mediator in this dispute. Who is the true companion? I don't know. You know, we're not told. And and maybe that's on purpose because the work of third-party mediation between, you know, quarreling members of the church, it's not glamorous work. But it's very necessary work. And it's very important work. It's very glorious work because you're protecting the unity of the church. Now, before moving on, I just want to get out ahead of some p- potential naivete, ignorance, pride that might lead you to believe that what's happening here in Philippi between Uartia and Synthache could never happen here at Sixth Avenue. It definitely could, right? Like, just, just don't let that be your mindset because that is our mindset, right? Like whenever we hear about bad things happening like cancer or terrorist attacks or natural disasters, we are on some level inclined to think, oh, well, it's not going to happen here, you know? Oh, I hate to hear that their marriage is breaking up, you know, but my marriage is never going to have any issues, right? It's never going to happen here until it does. You know, we're, 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 oh, fascism, that's a European problem until the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. You know, terrorist attacks, did he just get political? You don't even know the history behind that, don't worry about it. Terrorist attacks, you know, they don't happen on American soil until, that is, two airplanes fly into the Twin Towers. Or did they? See, now, no, we're not doing that. Okay. <laughs> now, the, the point is, is that it's easy for us to be caught off guard by the things that we believe can't happen to us. And then they do. And we are just absolutely shocked, taken aback, how we could have never seen this coming, except for that you could have. Because the reason why this is in the Bible is because every single church is going to face their own Euodia and Synthicae situation. Oh, the details won't be exactly the same, and the names are definitely going to be different, right? But, but the essence of it is something that we can all experience. Now, we can't change that. We can't stop that. Threats to the unity of the church, that's just part and parcel of being a church. The Lord and his sovereign providence will sort of determine when and where and how that happens. But what we can do is prepare ourselves to respond appropriately when that does happen. So as your pastor, I'm asking you, pay attention this mo- pay attention every morning, every Sunday morning, and pay attention this morning. Because I, and listen, this is just the way that Satan works, right? I'm preaching on unity. The the book of Philippians has in many ways just been a book about unity. It's a book about a lot of things, joy and persecution and perseverance, but it's a book about unity, and we have been hammering, hammering, hammering unity. If you don't think Satan is going to try and come right behind this and test our resolve, do a sort of check on knowledge to see if we've been paying attention and actually believing and internalizing what we've been doing, I mean, you're crazy. That's exactly the kind of thing that he's going to do. You, know? you sign that church covenant, and half of that church covenant is like, hey, life together is going to be really hard. You better be committed to fighting through how difficult it really is. Right? I sent that to someone this week, a church member who was frustrated and may not be coming back. And I said, listen, remember when you read this and we talked about it for six weeks and then, and then you signed it? That's what this is for right now. So brothers and sisters, in the coming days, weeks, months, years, whenever something happens in this church and you're like, man, it feels like Sixth Avenue is kind of coming apart at the seams. You know, It seems like we're being attacked from every angle. It feels like our unity is, is sort of crumbling before our very eyes. I know. I told you. I promised you that it was going to happen, and we did our best to prepare for it. So lock in, focus, and try to take in as much of this as you can, not just into your head, but into your heart, to prepare for what will certainly come to pass. So, uh, let's talk a little bit more about this true companion, okay? Uh, Every person in the church at some point will be on one side of this coin or another. You may be on the side of needing to be the true companion, the person who helps the church or members in the church work through unity issues. Or you may be the person who needs to be helped because you are in the midst of a battle you know, you are the one who is feeling the strain of disunity because of any number of different things that might be happening in the church. You might be sitting here, I don't, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but you might be sitting here this morning going, you know, actually I am feeling a little strained and I don't feel as united to the church as I have in days past. And, and there is some relational friction that to be honest with you, Sean, has been bothering me. Well, yeah, that's going to happen in a church. Okay. So at every point you will, at, at some point, everyone will either need to be the helped or the helper okay so with that in mind I'm going to give you three quick points regarding the need uh for help uh pertaining to unity in the body of Christ the the first two points are just more theoretical kind of laying the the, the theological framework and then the third point will be more practical application that we're going to have a lot of subpoints, like a lot Point number one, sometimes we need help. Sometimes we're the ones who need help. You hear me, type A personalities? Sometimes we need help. And you probably need help more often than you realize, right? I remember uh, early on in um, my time at Sixth Avenue, Will Stevenson and I had a little bit of a flare-up in our relationship. He was an intern. I was the new boss here. The church was really struggling, The reasons for our little relational riff were myriad and honestly pretty dumb, but the issue was significant enough that we didn't think that we could see past it on our own. So, you know what we did? We asked for help. So we we called Grant Miller up, and, uh, you know, he showed up and did his thing. We had a meeting one night, and I don't remember really anything that Grant said. I mean, does anybody ever... I don't remember anything... (laughs) That Grant said that night when we were all sitting down together, but I'll tell you what, I know that he helped us, right? He was a true companion, and, and that night we were able to work through that issue, and by God's grace, our relationship has, me and Will, our relationship has flourished because of it, right? And that's between two, you know, full-time staff ministry members, right? At some point, you may need a true companion of your own. You might need it in your marriage, you might need it with a child, you might need it with an elder, you might need it with just any random fellow church member. Almost certainly you will at some point find yourself struggling to make headway in a conflict that you are experiencing with a brother or sister in the church. And everything in you, your instinct is probably going to be to say, I can handle this on my own, right? You just need to right now just mark that in your brain as something that you need to put to death when you think that just just put that instinct to death, kill that nerve. When you are at a relational impasse with a brother and sister, brother uh, and sister, or sister in the church, you should reach out for help. So let me offer you some some thoughts on how to do that. First, let me address the husbands in the room. Uh, husbands, please do not be too proud to ask for help in your marriage. You hear me, husbands? thank you uh do not be too proud you cannot fix everything in your marriage by yourself you guys remember home improvement tim the toolman taylor like, hur, 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 right yeah, yeah yeah. you know he he was like the tool guy he was the fix it guy he had a show about home improvement and like the biggest conflict in his marriage would be whenever there would be something that would go wrong at the house and his wife would be like you need to call someone to like get help with that and he was like never you know i'm the man i'm gonna fix it right we can do that in our marriage, uh, husbands, and it is so unwise. It's so immature. Listen, the only person who can fix everything in your marriage is God. And seeing as how you're not God, you should be quicker than not, probably quicker than you feel like you should be, to like, reach out and ask for help working through marital issues. Right? You have to remember that your wife is not just your wife. She's also your sister in Christ right? She's also a fellow church member. You are both members of the same body, and when you're not doing well, it affects the whole body, right? So ask for help. Wives, whatever it is in you that says, I don't want to ask for help because I don't want anyone to see the ugly parts of our lives, you need to put that to death, right? right? Men and women have the same kind of problem, they just experience it in different ways. Men, it's like, you know, Nobody needs to help me. Women, it's like, I need to protect this image of our home, you know, this sort of southern living, everything's put together, everything's fine, nothing's wrong with our family image. You have got to put that to death. First of all, because everyone sees right through it. We know that it's not true. The only way that you can consistently live like that is if you live like a, an extreme hypocrite. And even then, people will still see through the flaw, right? I mean, the, through, the, through, the, through the sham, through the masquerade. So why not just get out ahead of it and be like, actually, you know, uh, my family is kind of like my home. I love it, but it's not always well put together. And sometimes I need some help cleaning up, right? Parents. So now I'm talking to husbands and wives with children. Do not believe the lie that says that issues with your children should only be dealt with in-house. Nobody knows my children better than me. Yeah, but you're also so close to them that you may not be able to see things very clearly. Let's say you don't see things clearly at all, but you might need an outside perspective. You know, your family is doing life with other families in the church, and they probably see some things that they're just waiting for the Lord to give them an opportunity to help you with, right? So when you experience an issue with your kids, who are you going to go talk to? That feels like a Ghostbusters lead up, right? Who are you going to... Reach out to other members in the church. And it doesn't have to be everyone in the church. It doesn't even have to be the pastors. Maybe just find one or two families with parenting styles that you respect, that you think are biblical, faithful, that have produced good fruit, and be like, all right, here's the deal. If we ever run into stuff with our kids, we're going to ping them because it seems like, by God's grace, they're doing a pretty good job. And let me just also tell you parents, you don't God never designed for you to like carry this parenting load by yourself, right? That's that's a lie of modern, uh, you know, whatever it is that this this atomized age we're living in, right? Family units are supposed to come together into communities and then families work together to raise their children in community. Christ wants you to receive all the help you can in raising up your children. So I pray that 6th Avenue would be the kind of place that is marked by that. The church members, you should know that it is perfectly acceptable and encouraged to ask for mediation when you have an issue with another church member. Right? You can reach out to an elder if you need to. You can reach out to someone else in the church. Having said that, you should, of course, try to follow the biblical pattern of Matthew 18. It's designed by Jesus that way for a reason. right? If possible, try to address that issue with the member one-on-one. If that doesn't work, expand the circle a little bit. Try to just bring one other person into it, right? If that doesn't go well, maybe bring a couple more people into it. But always try to start with the smallest possible concentric circle and then work your way out from there. But don't hesitate to reach out and ask for help. And and let me tell you, uh, I am confident, brother. Uh, Turn to Romans 15. I'm probably going to reference this verse more than once, um, which is okay because to repeat myself is no problem for me and it's safe for you. Romans 15, verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now, Paul is saying this to a church full of Christians that he has never met. At the time of this writing, Paul had never been to Rome. So how can he be so confident? Because he knows that they have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, well, then you are full of goodness. You are full of knowledge. You are able to instruct one another, right? So if your instinct is to go either, I don't need any help or I have to run to a pastor, I want you to know that there are like three or four gears in between those two gears, And they all involve calling on your fellow church members who are full of the same Holy Spirit as your pastors and who in some ways may even be wiser than your pastors or maybe even better suited to address the issue that you're experiencing in the church. So don't feel like I can either not ask for help or I have to ask for the pastor's help. No, reach out to someone in the church and and, in humility and with great uh, hope and faith, ask them to be your true companion in your dispute. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about uh, the character of those that we should call on to be our true companions whenever we need help. Uh, Paul calls the person that he enlists to mediate this dispute between Uadi and Syntyche, he calls this person a true companion, which I think is meant to speak to uh, a track record of proven Christian character. So, what are you to do with that? I think what that means is that if you ever have to call upon a mediator in the church, look for someone who has demonstrated a consistency in their love for Christ, their personal holiness, their wisdom among the saints, right? You don't want to reach out to someone who's struggling worse than you are to help you, you know, someone who's on fire to put out your fire, right? Right? That doesn't mean that someone has to have it all perfectly together, but it does mean that if someone is going to come in and mediate a pretty tricky, thorny dispute, you need to trust that they have the Christian character and wisdom to be able to handle that well. Honestly, one of the kind of gears between pastor and just you doing it by yourself is deacons. That's like if, if don't ask for help is gear one, and I know a lot about cars, so this is going to be good, is gear one, and going to the elders is gear five, uh, asking for help from a deacon is like gear four. Guys, the deacons are not just like the, facility, the facilities administrators. You know, they're not just the ones who organize like church cleaning days. Deacons have to be spirit-filled, qualified leaders in the church because they're most often employed, or at least they should be, to help preserve the unity of the church, right? I wouldn't be surprised, and this is speculation, Paul doesn't say, but I wouldn't be surprised if this true companion was a deacon at Philippi. So deacons, raise your hand. Ben, where's Tim? Gospel, ki- serving again. Dang, this guy can't stop him from serving the body, right? Yes, reach out to them. I, I, I mean, they wouldn't be deacons in this church if they were just not full of all of the things that they need to be full of in order to help you work through these issues. Now, a word of caution. Uh, you may be tempted to not even intentionally enlist someone that will, like, champion your side of a dispute, right? So, you know, like, yeah, there's a dispute between me and someone else, and, you know, my husband agrees with me, and they're going to be the, well, yeah, of course your husband agrees with you, right? He has to live with you, you know? I mean, sometimes you may want to get, like, your parents involved or grandparents involved, but what we're looking for in someone who's going to mediate a dispute is not just, like, wisdom and godly character, but also objectivity, because, listen... As much as, I I mean, I'm going to try to be as objective as possible if, if like, there arises an issue between, like, Amber and some other sister in the church. But, man, it's going to be hard, right? Because you're probably wrong, right? And Amber's probably right. So what I'm probably going to have to do there is sort of recuse myself from the situation and and just trust that the Lord has a bunch of other good people in the church who can handle that situation. And I say that as someone who has had to do it in the past. Um, yeah. Point number two. Sometimes we are called on to be the helper, to be the true companion. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed indeed. I know, guys, that we are all swimming in our own problems, our own drama, our own stress, our own depression, fear, anxiety, sin issues but we still have jobs to do as members of this local church, right? And and by the way, these are jobs that we get to do. The Lord has been very kind to allow us to have any part in his ministry of building up the church, right? So we get to do this job wherein we serve our brothers and sisters in the church who have needs that we can meet, right? So when a dispute arises in the church, the main way that we can help is by speaking the truth to them in love. This is how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, be at peace among yourselves, right? So addressing the same theme as is being addressed here in Philippians, be at peace among yourselves, be unified. And we urge you brothers to admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak and be patient with them all. So these are three different kinds of sheep in the church that could be disturbing the peace, right? The idle, the faint hearted, the weak. And Paul says, here's how you minister to them. You speak to them right? Not just your words. Your words are kind of worthless. You speak the words of Christ. You speak the words of wisdom, the words of the Bible. You admonish them with scripture. You encourage them with scripture. You help them with scripture. And the the key phrase right there at the end of that verse is, and he says, be patient with them all. I hope you have that as a category. I really do. If you think that like your service to people who are in like a a, a row, with dispute in the church is going to be just like this one-off meeting? Sometimes it is. When me and Will sat down with Grant, we pretty much, but we're awesome. You know what I'm saying? But like, but for most of the people who go through these unity issues in the church, it's not going to be you helping them. It's not going to be an event. It's going to be a journey. Right? That's why it requires patience. It's going to require patience as you sit down and like talk for two or three hours. You're like... You're like, you know, the alarm's going to go off at 5.30, and it's 11.30, and all you're thinking is, I want, I want to be at home. and You need patience in that moment, but you also need patience when, at the end of the night, as really the issue hasn't been resolved, you say, okay, let's meet again on Saturday, Right? You need patience as even if it does resolve, the way things tend to work is they have cycles and then peace and then cycles. And you go, hey, let me just tell you, I'm glad that we've got peace on this. But you should know that, that like if this comes up again, it's OK. Let's just come back and talk about it together again. And, and then you're going to need patience when you enter into that next cycle. And perhaps the cycle after that, patiently admonish, patiently encourage, patiently help. Right. Point number three. Let's get into the specifics of how we help. Here in point three, I basically just want to offer you six characteristics of a good gospel appeal for unity. Because that's what the true companion is doing, right? Paul says flip back over to Philippians chapter four. I don't hear anybody flipping. Are we flipping? All right, all these electronic Bibles, huh? Support your pastor and just flick the pages of your Bible so I can hear the sound. There we go. Right? I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Right? So what he's saying is like, I'm making the appeal, but I'm making the appeal through you. I need you to get involved. Right? So here are six aspects, six characteristics of what it looks like to be a true companion, to make a good gospel appeal. First the first aspect of a good gospel appeal is that it is an appeal to love a good gospel appeal is an appeal to love you can see this in verse 2 i entreat you audia and i entreat syntheky to agree in the lord the word that's used here translated in the english bible that you have is entreat Paul says, I entreat you to reconciliation. Now, the same Greek word is translated as appeal elsewhere in the New Testament. I don't know why they made the decision to translate it differently, uh, but it's okay because it, they basically mean the same thing, right? The basic idea is I'm going to try to use the gospel to persuade you to act in a particular way that's what it means to entreat someone or to appeal so for example if a brother or sister in the church comes and they confess to me that they've been you know watching pornography right how am i am i going to be like well you shouldn't do that that's bad stop it you know that's old bob newhart bit no that's not the way that you you just stop it no What are we going to do? We're going to try to persuade them by holding forth the gospel and letting the gospel do the work of ministering to them, right? Shaping their ethical uh, behavior, right? So it's very important that we understand that an appeal does not stand over the Christian and say, do this or else. No, a gospel appeal comes alongside the Christian and it says in light of the gospel that we both believe, I want to exhort you. To gospel faithfulness. You can see this in the book of Philemon, right? So in Philemon, uh, Paul is addressing the issue of Onesimus and Philemon owning, you know, one owns the other. And, And this is what it says. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, which is to release him. He's your brother in Christ. He shouldn't be your slave, right? And I could command you to do it. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, and that word translated as appeal, it's the same word in Greek as entreat there in Philippians, right? So I entreat you, I appeal to you, I, Paul, and then he says this, right, tugging on the heartstrings, I, Paul, an old man, right? Now, uh, Mike Phillips, you've said that before, right? When you're just, Oh, you know, Mike, an old man, right? I, I appeal to you, and now, by the way, on top of being old, the prisoner, right? A prisoner for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, right? What do we see here? Paul is making an appeal to Philemon based on the gospel. He says, Philemon, listen, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. We both read this same book. We both know that you having Onesimus as a slave is not okay. Now, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm Paul, you know what I'm saying? I'm the apostle. I could command you to do this, but I don't want to have to do that. What I want to do is just for both of us to look at the same gospel and to agree about what the best thing to do is. But look at he says, for love's sake, I prefer. Listen, the essence of, of, of true relational unity is it, whatever we do, we have to be doing it willingly. Right? Or we should aspire to be doing it willingly. If, if you have to force your spouse to give you a kiss, it just it steals all the joy. right? If I have to shame you into being at church on Sunday morning, something's wrong here. right? If I have to use anything other than an appeal to our shared love, then, then something is not right here. And by the way, you've probably been a member of a church like that where every ethical imperative is born not of love, but of guilt and shame. But that's just not the way that the Lord ministers to us, right? Okay, so you come back to Philippians chapter 4, right? Paul is making an appeal in love, right? He's appealing to you, Audia and key. He's saying, listen, sisters, I know that you love Jesus. And I know that you love the gospel. And I know that you love me. And I know that you love one another. So you have to find some way to get through this, to get past this, To reconcile. Don't be surprised if I'm ever counseling you in a relational thing, and that's basically what I do. I just write off the rip, and I'm like, hey, do you guys love each other, right? Well, let's start there, because if we can't start there, then there's really not hope for anything else after that. Do you both love Jesus? Do you both love the gospel? Do you both love the church? More than that, he says to his true companion, you know that these women love each other, right? You see that, look at verse 3 again. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, right? Why do you go out and labor for the gospel, right? Why do you go out and put your life on the line? You do it out of love, right? So he's saying, true companion, help them by appealing to that. Okay, now turn to Philippians chapter 2. Just flip back maybe one page in your Bibles. I just want to show you this one more time. This is when Paul's just laying the general theological framework before he gets specific. But he says the same thing. He says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's being unified. Having the same love. Right? An appeal to unity that is grounded in love. Listen, this is what relationships look like sometimes in a fallen world. Two people who may love each other very much, enter into a conflict and forget that they love each other, right? They forget that they love each other. They forget that they are on the same team. They forget that they're headed to the same destination. They forget that they worship the same God. And one of the key characteristics of doing good gospel appeal is to point that love out. Don't let them forget it. Hold it before their face and then do all these other ones. Number two, sub point two, the second aspect of a good gospel appeal to unity is that we should appeal to joy. We should appeal to joy. You, we can stay right there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Right? So we talked about this back in chapter 2, but we'll, we'll repeat it again. In chapter 2, Paul is not afraid to appeal to them on the basis of his own joy, right? Members of Sixth Avenue, you should want your pastors to labor over you in joy. You should not want your pastors to labor over you in exhaustion. You should not want your pastors to labor over you In frustration, you should not want your pastors to labor over you with bitterness. You should want your pastors to labor over you in joy. And there's a way in which you can add to that or subtract from it. Listen to Hebrews 13. Paul says, Obey your leaders and to submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay? Now this is right, He's, he says you should obey them, that will make them joyful. Obey them in all things, no, we're not perfect. Insofar as they are pointing you in the way of Christ, you should be following them in the way of, the, of Christ. And if all the members of the church are doing that, that brings joy to your pastor. But if, if we are like eating one another up, biting and devouring one another, if there's petty quarreling and squabbling and fighting over things that at, at the end of the day, when we get to eternity, we're going to look back and we're like, that was stupid. It didn't matter. Your pastors will not labor over you in joy. So if you are helping a reconciliation issue in the church, don't feel like you can't point to your pastors and be like, look how hard you're making their life. That's biblical. That's biblical. If you have any questions about that I could ramble on but let's move on to subpoint number three a third aspect of a gospel appeal to unity is that it should appeal to the unity that already exists turn with me to Ephesians chapter four Galatians Ephesians just a one book back from Philippians once again not hearing many bible pages turning assuming they are Bible apps are opening. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Basically, live like the gospel is true, okay? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace. What I want you to see is that all throughout the New Testament, whenever we're like exhorted to like fight for unity, it's never like creational, right? Not not like fight to create unity in the church. No, it's always preservational. It's always, you need to fight to keep that which you already have. That's what Paul says here. You have to be eager to maintain what you already have, right? Think about it. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we partake in the one bread, drink of the one cup, right? We believe the one same gospel. We are, if you're a Christian, like a truly regenerate believer, you are unified with the church. It may not always feel like it. Satan's constantly trying to attack it and destroy it. And sometimes you are working at cross purposes with your own unity Nevertheless, you are unified. You are members of the same body. And you don't get to decide to just rip yourself out of the body when you're in a little bit of a funk, okay? You are unified. Nevertheless, you have to fight to maintain that unity. Well, I thought you said we're unified, and God's sovereign over that. Yes, he is, but he sovereignly ordains the means as well as the ends. And the mean that he ordains to preserve the unity that he has created in the church is you working hard to keep it. So remember that. Next time there's some relational strife that you're experiencing in the church and you go, ah, this is so hard. I know. I know. He said it was going to be like that. He said that you were going to have to, the word eager to maintain, eager to maintain, that word maintain, it's very soft in English. In the Greek, it's more like what a wrestler does right? It's something, it's like fighting, right? Like you have to fight to maintain the, so that's what a a good gospel appeal does. It says, hey, I know that this is really hard, but you have got to fight to maintain the unity of the church. The fourth aspect of a good gospel appeal to unity is that it appeals to Christ himself, who is not divided, right? Notice the contrast between verses two and, and, and the verse two and verse three in Philippians. Flip back over, Paul says, I entreat you, Audia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me, with me, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, right? So Paul says, there is a sense in which these sisters are unified in me. You see that? They were laborers with me. They labor side by side with me in my ministry. But that is secondary to the unity that they have in Christ. So his first and most prominent and most significant appeal is that they agree in the Lord because that is primarily where their unity is, right? It's almost like Paul is saying to them, listen, if your unity was just about like being connected to me and my ministry, then that's not enough. You have to be united because you are united in Christ first and foremost, right? I, I hope that you think that way about this church. I love Sixth Avenue. I love our church so much. I want to celebrate it and talk about it every chance I get. Whenever I'm on the road, it's like uh, the first thing I do is talk about my wife and kids, and the next thing I do is celebrate my church. But you have to know that if you think the unity that you have with other believers is just because of something special and unique that's happening at this church that you can't get in another church, you're wrong, Right? I do think our church is special in more than one way. We're, we're special. But your unity is not primarily in this church. It's not primarily in my ministry or in Will's ministry or in Russell's ministry. Your unity with other believers is primarily in the Lord Jesus, right? Which means that you have more unity with a believer in China that you've never met. You don't speak the same language. You're not from the same culture. You don't have the same you know, ethnic distinctives. You have more unity with that person than like a member of your family that you love dearly and you see two or three times a week. Right? What that means is that you have more unity with a believer at, insert name of kind of squishy church down the road, where you wouldn't agree on maybe everything that they believe and everything that they do, you still have more, if they're real Christians and that's a true gospel church, you have more unity with them than you do your mother or your father if they're unbelievers. You have more unity with them than your children if your children are unbelievers. It may not seem like it now, but from the perspective of eternity, trust me, you will see quite clearly the unity that you have with them because of the gospel. The fifth uh, aspect of a, a good gospel appeal to unity is that we should appeal to God's glory. Turn back with me to Romans 15. Starting in verse 5. <clears throat> May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, that's the language of unity, harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, and there there you see the foundation, our unity is in Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are trying to help someone work through a unity issue, feel free to come to this verse and be like, your disunity is detracting from the glory of God in the church, right? It is when a bunch of people who should not be in the same room, who should not be having one voice, come together in the same room with one voice in a way that doesn't make sense at all to the world, but makes a ton of sense to heaven. When we all come together, all of us who are quite disparate in every way, come together in unity and we glorify God with our voices. When that happens, God is glorified. When it doesn't happen, when churches split and tear apart and crumble, is God going to get the glory in the end? Yes, of course God is going to get the glory in the end. But you don't want to be part of the muffling of God's glory in the church, right? By destroying and tearing apart the foundations of unity. I think I've used this illustration before, but I only have like three illustrations, so I just got to keep reusing them, so I'm just going to reuse this one as well. I remember there was this, I was at a very serious Presbyterian assembly, and, and they were, you know... Uh, being very, as Presbyterians do, you know, they were being very serious in this gathering. And uh, as I went to go sit down, uh, a Christian rap song began to blare quite obnoxiously on my phone. And I was like, you know, so I'm, I'm like trying to dig in my pocket and get the phone out. And what, what do you think the first thing I did is when I got the phone? I just tried to muffle it, right? Like I knew I, I, messing with the buttons, it probably wasn't going to work well. So as I was running out of the room, I was trying to muffle the sound. Have you ever tried to muffle the speaker on like an iPhone before? It doesn't really work, right? That's kind of what it's like when we talk about God's glory in the church. God's glory is always going to come through the church, even when we mess it up with our sin, even when we muffle it with our disunity. But if you love the glory of God as much as God loves the glory of God, then you should never want to be a part of the muffling, right? You should always want God's glory to come out clearly and brightly and resplendently through your ministry in the local church, and by the way, if you find yourself in a dispute in the church, and you feel like you have disunity, and you're looking for like the motivation to continue to work through this problem so that you can be reunited, tell yourself, "I love the glory of God, and even if I don't it, at this moment particularly feel like I love this person or like this person, and if I'm ready to give up, I'm not going to give up on the glory of God. So I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep trying to seek reconciliation." The sixth and final aspect of a good gospel appeal is that we should appeal to eternity. Look at verse 3. Go back to Philippians 4. We are flipping around a lot today. Go back to Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 3 again. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Guys, what that means is that Eudia and Syntyche are like really saved, right? Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And by the way, all the names put into that book of life were put there before the foundations of the world, Right? Paul points to that, and he says, guys, you have to get along. One day, you're going to look back from heaven on whatever it is that you're fighting about right now, and you're going to say, it wasn't worth it. Should we fight about the Trinity? Yes, can and should, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about. Should we we fight about complementarianism and and other important doctrines? Yes, we can and should. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about things that they are just, at the end of the day, silly, not worth tearing the church apart over. Right? Just think about it. Euodia and Synthache, right now, like at this very moment, are in heaven together. They're gathered around the throne. Now I don't know your eschatology might say that they're still asleep, but you get the point, right? Like, in the blink of an eye, right? gathered around the throne crying out, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb who was slain, right? Just giving 10,000 hosannas to, to Christ who saved them. And, and as they're gathered around the throne there together, they're looking back and going, yeah, the Lord, the Lord used it, and uh, we went through it for a reason, but man, it was stupid, right? Paul encourages us to have that perspective, and I think we would do well to remember that in the life of our church, brothers and sisters. One day we will all be gathered around the throne together, And a lot of the stuff that we think is worth fighting about really, we'll see, isn't worth fighting about at all. Uh, John Newton, the writer of maybe the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, he says it like this when he's writing to another younger pastor dealing with a a quarrel, a theological quarrel. He says, before you set pen to paper against your Christian opponent, And and by the way, that's Christian opponent, not heretical opponent, opponent, not someone preaching the the gospel of Mormonism or salvation by works, right? A a, a person who is truly repentant, believing in the one true gospel, okay? Before you set pen to paper against your Christian opponent, opponent, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you should commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. And this practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate, that is to make your heart warm, to conciliate your heart, to love and perhaps pity towards him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. And if you're thinking, well, Sean, I'm not going to be writing anybody. Every text you send, every email, right right before you go to hit send on that email where you're going to address some issue you have with leaders in your church or fellow church members, ask yourself if you've done this. If you have gone to the Lord on their behalf in prayer, right? And then he says this, on, on their behalf in prayer. He says this, in a little while you will meet him In heaven, and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. So in closing, brothers and sisters, let's go back to Together for the Gospel. Together for the Gospel no longer exists in the form of a formal conference and ministry with a 501c3 and all of that stuff but we are still together for the gospel are we not right that ministry continues on even though it's not continuing on in the form of a conference together for the gospel exists every time believers celebrate more of what they have in common than what separates them it exists every month when the Healthy Church Collective, which is a group of uh, about 40 like-minded pastors in the area, gathers in our basement for mutual strengthening and encouragement in the ministry, despite our many differences. Oh, you baptize at eight, we wait till 18, and yet somehow we still come together and have that unity. Together for the gospel exists every time members of our church, This church, Sixth Avenue Community Church, make the conscious decision to glorify God by working through the superficial issues that unnecessarily divide us. Right? And listen, it's one of the joys of my pastorate. It's never fun to go through it, but I've been through a lot of those issues with you guys and I've seen a ton of grace. Right? I'm so glad that I get to preach this sermon not as someone who is frustrated and hoping to compel you to get on board with this vision, but as a pastor who has seen that our church is shaped by this vision, is obedient to this vision, rejoices in this vision. As a pastor who has seen the fruit of this vision lived out carefully and faithfully in our church. You have to remember brothers and sisters that all of this unity talk, reconciliation talk, it all flows up out of the gospel. Right? The only way that you can seek unity and reconciliation in the church is when you recognize that at one point you were disunified from God by your sin, right? You that is to say you were separated from God by your sin. Not an accidental sin, not an oopsie-daisy, a willfully chosen, abhorrent, egregious sin against the God of the universe who made you, who loves you. You chose to rebel against him, to turn your back on him, to disregard his love, to disregard his laws, to disregard his ways, and you were separated from him. And he could have just said, well, you know, whatever. (laughs) You don't want what I got? I don't need you, right? I'm not going to Beg you to come back to me, I'm not gonna sacrifice to go get you. That is not the gospel that we believe. The gospel that we believe says that even though God was the offended party, even though he was the one who was sinned against, and by the way, the sin that he, the sin that we committed against God is infinitely worse than any sin we can commit against one another, right? Even though he was the one who was sinned against, he went to the greatest lengths to reconcile us and to be reconciled with us, right? He gave up his only son, his glorious, beautiful, perfectly loving son. He gave him up to a brutal, painful, shameful death on a cross. Why? Because that's what love demands. Right. And he glorified himself as he did that, as he called us back to himself. Did he not glorify himself? If you're a real Christian, what's the first thing that you said once you realized that you were a sinner and that God had saved you by his grace and his grace alone? I think the first thing, even if you didn't say it with your lips, that you said in your heart was, praise God. Thank you, God. <laughs> I give you all the glory, Lord. Thank you. I don't deserve this. I don't know why I have it, but I do have it. And so I give you the glory. It's only when this lives deep down in your bones that you understand that this is this is the story, like the true story that you are participating in. Only when you understand that can you then begin to have any hope of seeking unity and reconciliation in the church. If you want to know why so many churches are rent asunder by disunity, is because they are full of unregenerate members. They are full of people who do not believe this gospel, who have not been changed by this gospel, who when they look at an issue of reconciliation, they go, no, nah, I don't. You, you come to me not going to you you come to me you're the one who sinned against me only a person who has never experienced the the free love and grace of God could ever talk like that at our worst we do that do we not at our worst I can't tell you how many times in in my marriage I've known I preach it to myself I've been mad and I've been like Sean you're the priest of the household you have to initiate reconciliation even when I feel like I was sinned against which doesn't happen often right when I feel like I'm the one who sinned against Right? And I go, no, enough is enough. This time she has to come to me. She has to start the reconciliation process. Even as I say that in my heart, there's another voice saying to me in my heart, you know that that's not the way it works. You know that the gospel demands more of you. You know that you need to be the one to image Christ and go to her and seek the reconciliation. Our only hope to be the kind of church that stands firm in unity and does the kinds of things that we're looking at in the Bible today is if we are first and foremost gospel people. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I do want you to know that you are separated from God. But I also want you to know that he loves you and he has gone to great lengths to bring you back home. And by the way, that home is filled with brothers and sisters and we're going to be together forever. And so if you want to be a part of a a truly glorious, amazing, happy family, I want you to know that that Christ is inviting you to that family today. If only you will repent and believe. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. The God of endurance and encouragement, may he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we need your help to do these impossible things that you command of us in your word. And we rejoice to know that we have that help. Help us to glorify you as we live our lives together uh, this week and every week until you come back and take us home. We pray this in your son's holy, glorious, beautiful name. Amen.